that is more common than not, that imposter syndrome, especially when you're pushing yourself in new directions, right? Like you're, you're pushing yourself out of that stasis and into this realm where you don't know everything. It's still scary. You're stepping in and meeting a new team. You're now accountable for things that you don't know how to do. And you feel like you're faking it for a long time. And I think that's natural. Hey everyone, welcome to Nonlinear, a podcast about the decisions that shape our careers. I'm Dave Fano, the founder and CEO of Teal and the host of this show. If you're enjoying the conversation on this episode, please make sure to subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. It really helps shine a light on these amazing careers and increases the chances of us learning from each other. Again, thank you so much, and let's jump into this amazing career story. Thanks for joining today. We're with Jeff Reinhardt who I've had the pleasure of getting to know over the last six months and uh, has quickly escalated to being one of my favorite human beings on the planet. But now it's for you guys to hear a little bit about Jeff directly. So Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, happy to. Thanks for having me. My name is Jeff Reinhardt. As you mentioned, I'm a partner at a venture capital firm called City Lake Capital. Uh, City Lake Capital is uh, what we call an impact firm. So we only invest in companies that can do top decile like venture returns financially, but also do measurable social good. We, we invest in three sectors primarily. We invest in companies building tech-driven solutions in climate, education, and care. And we've been doing that for almost 20 years at this point, so before the term impact investing even existed. So I, I've been at City Light for about four years, spent 20 years before that as an operator. I started in the early days of Capital One. I started there as a statistician, so I'm a math guy by training, and spent 11 years at Capital One, did a whole host of things, the last of which was running marketing strategy for them, for their US consumer credit card function. So had their direct mail engine, all their online channels at a time when Facebook was becoming Facebook and AdWords was becoming AdWords and kind of got to see that ecosystem get born, which is pretty neat. And then left there and decided I wanted to try my hand in startup land. So joined an early stage education technology company as their chief marketing officer. Uh, we timed it well in the EdTech boom and raised a bunch of venture money and took it public on the NASDAQ. So I got to ring the bell, got my daughters on the big screen. That was cool. <laughs> uh, and stayed for two years post-IPO and then decided uh, I was going to retire and be a professor for the rest of my life. So I went to American University in Washington, D.C. and was a full-time professor in their business school, teaching mostly graduate level ML, AI kind of stuff. And started advising companies and doing a little angel investing and that's really what, what led me to City Light. So, you know, I give you that background and narrative because there are a lot of twists and turns in that journey and a lot of pivots and a few pivots even before that. So happy to dive into whatever you think is most useful. I think your career highlights how, how many careers are, you know, and, and people will probably just see like the CMO transition to VC. But, you know, you studied math or a statistician came at it through the tech angle. Marketing's become much more uh, data driven. So I'm excited to talk through that. And for people to see that these things are generally nonlinear, you're probably more the standard, you know, uh, you're probably more the norm than the linear career, but people just, again, just don't talk about it. So let, let's take it back to the beginning. When was the first time in your life that you started to take actions or think deliberately about your career and kind of like what you wanted to do in air quotes? Yeah, it's a great question. I probably pegged that back to somewhere like second year undergrad. So I think up till then, I was largely under some form of inertia and, <laughs> and, and not proactively driving towards a particular career. Actually, I, I mentioned I had even a pivot or a few before my story, but 
I started college as a music major. Oh, wow. So I thought I was, I, I'm not sure what I thought I was going to be. Like I played music in bands all through high school and I was like, well, I'm going to keep playing music. So, you know, I went to college, I was a music major and that lasted probably a semester or two. And I was like, this, I, I'm not sure this is the career I want. I love music, but I'm not sure this is the career. And then I think I, I wandered aimlessly as an undergrad, as many of us do for a while. And I ended up finding a professor, which is often the case. And I think uh, that happens for a lot of people that really clicked with me. And that professor was in economics. And I really took to econ for a number of reasons. I think it's the same reasons that I like marketing. You know, it's a, it's a social science that's rooted in mathematics. And I, I loved both sides of that continuum. And as I started getting into economics, the more mathy sides of it around econometrics, I decided to, to stay and do my graduate degree and really felt like that was the path for me. I'd always been, even though I was a musician, I was a drummer. So percussion tends to be fairly rhythmic and, and mathematical. I, that always sort of clicked with math. And I think it was in that period that I really started thinking about career and jumped from uh, that master's degree straight to Capital One. So you got a master's degree in economics? I did, yeah. Applied micro with a concentration in econometrics. How, how did you make that shift from a degree in economics to then landing at Capital One? You know, it's interesting. That, that role at Capital One, in my mind at the time, was going to be short-lived. So mm -hmm. I, I loved economics and I got my master's degree. My plan was to ultimately go get my PhD and teach, which 20 years later I actually accomplished. But it, it took a long time. As you say, these things are windy. So I went to Capital One, took a job as a statistician. I, I'd only had a few stats classes in college and I didn't particularly like them. <laughs> uh, you know, I liked the more applied parts of econometrics. But as I got to better understand the role of what statisticians in places like financial services do, it was really about, it was more econometrics than it was pure stats, right? It was building predictive models. I like to tell people at the time I was using math to predict the future because that's what we were doing and felt like something I could do. And Capital One at the time seemed like a really interesting and unique company. You know, this was the early days where we were going to take on the big banks with math and sort of disrupt the norms and it was very entrepreneurial and, and fun place to work still think incredibly highly of the place you know as a as a math guy growing up at capital one you never had to convince people there that data mattered that analytics mm. mattered that math mattered and that's not always the case right but it was just in the dna there so i think i got there planning to only be there for a while to save up enough money and go get my phd and just fell in love with the work and the culture and the development that I was afforded and had a, even there, an oddly circuitous career. I, you know, I started there as a statistician and grew through the ranks of the stat family there and became what's called a scoring officer, which is at Capital One that drive business strategy. I actually wanted to try my hand at driving business strategy. So even though I was having a fairly successful run in that stat family, decided to pivot and became an analyst and started to learn that. And that's where I ultimately moved into marketing and did a bunch of stuff along the way. But Did you need to go down a few levels when you made that shift? Because I would imagine a, the person who signed off on the models was, you know, hierarchically fairly high up in the company. Mm -hmm. So what, what was that? And also even just like in terms of compensation, did you need to take a comp hit to do that? 
I, luckily, I didn't. Uh, you know, I was afforded the ability to take what was a sort of parallel move, I guess. Mm. Right? Like, so it wasn't a step down in terms of title or level. Scope, probably. Right? Like, in the stat family at the time, as a scoring officer, to your point, I was, people were bringing models for my approval. And, you know, that level of authority didn't exist in that horizontal analyst move that I went over to. Now, I ultimately grew in that role to, like, the analogous, quote, officer at the time in the analyst role was called a credit officer. So, you know, I mentioned the business analyst would develop a strategy where that model would be a piece of. That strategy had to be approved by a credit officer before it could be rolled out and become part of Capital One's strategy. I ultimately became a credit officer as well. I think I was the first person at Capital One to be both a scoring officer and a credit officer uh, at the same time. You know, it, it took a while to get back to that same level of authority and approval. So what, what was kind of going through your mind at the time that prompted the change. Cause I think a lot of people have these feelings, you know, I call it the career growth loop where you kind of search transition develop and you know, we search for something, then we, we, we transition into it, which takes a minute, can be turbulent. And then we start to develop and then we plateau and then we search again. Right. So you, I would imagine you started to hit that like plateau in the develop and what, you know, to make a shift like that, right. It's just kind of easy. And, you know, and you tell people, they're going to say like, Hey, just keep doing what you're doing. You have a great job. Why, why would you like rock the boat? You know, what, what was going on inside that said, you know what, I got I to gotta shake things up. Yeah, I've never been good at stasis and you know, <laughs> not, not rocking the boat or taking the easy seat. Even at times when intellectually I know, like, what are you doing? Like, things are just fine. Like, why are you going to go do that? But I, I think it's, you, you articulated it well, right? Like, you, you hit this plateau. And it's not that I necessarily plateaued from a career arc standpoint, but from a like always feeling like I'm learning and, you know, that part of me doesn't understand what's going on. And, I, and the, the feel of that, I kind of like, right? Like being in a space where I don't know it all and I have to learn and I have to go figure things out. I think at some point in that statistician role, that became less that, you know, that feeling of, oh, I got to continue to push myself. And, you know, and I mentioned like I, the statistician role, definitionally was building tools that somebody else would use to build the strategy. And I really wanted to try my hand at the strategy piece of it. And I think the combination of that plateauing or, or stasis combined with just a desire to try something new pushed me into the analyst family, which I was there for my last six years there, six or seven years. Uh, and it, ultimately, similar similar things caused me to to want to leave a company that I've had a ton of success in and love very dearly and join some crazy ed tech startup. Well, the in between there, the analyst, talk to me a little bit about the t transition from analyst into like the marketing function um, or if there even was one, because I know your next job was then leading marketing at the startup, but was there... You know, what was the transition like from analyst to marketing within Capital One? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and it was a six or seven year journey where I, I got to see and experience lots of different things across the Capital One organization. One of the, one of the great things about Capital One 
is they really do allow people to move around and see lots of things and try lots of things. I think, you know, their thesis and, you know, if anybody's ever gone through the interview process at Capital One, it's, it's, it's pretty intense. And, you know, they're looking for certain competency traits and those kind of things with the, the idea that if you hire a certain type of person, they can just kind of figure it out, right? Like you move them around and they kind of figure it out. So when I first moved into the analyst role, I was working in U.S. card customer management group on a very particular program. So customer management is once we book a credit card customer, customer management is responsible for maintaining that customer over time. And one program that exists in card customer management is the credit line increase function. So whose credit line should we periodically increase because of X, Y, or Z? I was an analyst just on that one thing, right? And then I that role sort of expanded. And then I moved into our small business lending group and had some senior roles in small business lending and, you know, was there for a couple of years. And a manager I had worked with previously had gone to acquisition and, you know, said, hey, what do you think about coming in and running marketing? At the time, it was just digital. Uh, and the digital team at the time, like all of digital marketing for for US card, we, we all fit in a room. And it was sort of us jumping up and down saying like, no, this is going to matter, right? Like Capital One was and still a very large direct mailer, right? Like, no, like uh, the, these display ads are going to matter. And so it was, a, it was an interesting time. But to get there, there's a, a journey in and around Capital One, uh, even to land in that room where we were running digital. And so then what was happening is was kind of like a confluence of your interests, your abilities, and the market. Because right, advertising and user acquisition was, you know, obviously there was a lot of dollars spent, but in terms of return on investment was tricky, right? It was out of home, it was mailers, it was TV, yep. and marketing was transitioning into this like very measurable, what you're calling digital marketing, right? On websites, in social platforms, very trackable, very measurable marketing activities. So kind of and then, and then with your interest in economics, I would imagine it was like a perfect storm of, of all these things for you to jump into. Oh, I, yeah, that's so well said. I, I loved it. I, I still love it, right? Like it, it was that social science that the, had a bunch of similarities to that econ degree, right? My studies there, it was customer facing and creative and tech driven and new and ultimately rooted in mathematics, right? Like I, I your point sort of timed it when direct-to-consumer marketing at least had become a big math problem. And it just had all these things that I loved. And, you know, it, as, I, as I did that for a couple of years at Capital One, decided because of that, I mean, I think that's what caused me to try and take a leap where I would go run marketing somewhere uh, and build the team. All right, so talk us through that. How did that switch happen you're working at one of the best credit card companies with great commercials on tv at the time i remember watching all those now you're going to go work at a startup and how are you defining startup right because that that term can be you know teal six people with great support with investors like you to you know pre-ipo 1000 people with hundreds of millions in revenue so what, what was that kind of jump for you yeah that was um that was probably the biggest jump, right? Like you're going from, I had three kids at the time. We just moved into a new house. I had a, you know, VP job running marketing at Capital One and sort of taking a leap and joining a startup. And I'll tell you what I mean by startup was 
not an obvious thing one should be doing. I had a bunch of people asking me like, what in the world are you thinking? So the, the startup at the time, at the time it was a company called Tutor, number two T-O-R, that ultimately came to you, number two U. Two U partners with higher end universities. So when I say higher end, think like Georgetown, Harvard, Yale, Berkeley, to primarily bring, or at least initially bring graduate programs online. So we would host technology for a full graduate degree, you know, a data science degree at Berkeley or a master's in nursing from Georgetown or whatever the case may be. We'd host the technology and it was at the time, it was pre-COVID obviously, you know, it was envisioning how these classes could come alive virtually, just like they would on campus. But, you know, instead of walking into a brick and mortar classroom, you log into a virtual one. So we built that technology to enable brands like that to, to come on and scale. But we also wrapped that with a suite of services, everything from getting the degree credentialed in a certain state, right? Like University of Southern California is credentialed to deliver masters in midwifery degrees in California. We needed to get them credentialed in all 50 states to, you know, the training faculty about how to bring their courses online to the marketing and recruiting of the students, which is what I did as the chief marketing officer to you. So I wasn't marketing to you. I actually got to market Berkeley, Harvard, Yale, and so on. So I'll pin that for a second and we can talk more about what that job looked like. But going back to your question, how did I define startup and what did it look like when I joined? At the time, to you had two programs live with the University of Southern California and had and, and were generating students and revenue through those two programs and had two contracts signed but not yet launched. They were at the hundreds of employees, so it wasn't six. They had raised two rounds of financing and were in the process of raising their third. So they were post-revenue, call it in the 10 million-ish revenue range, probably less than that, single millions revenue range. And so, you know, it wasn't the earliest days of a startup but it wasn't, the IPO certainly wasn't a fait accompli, right? Like it was, there was a lot of white knuckle days and events and trials betwixt me joining and the ultimate public listing. So I think a lot of people face this, these situations where like, if you, if you would have described to you on paper and revenue, it's like, oh, that's, that's pretty, you know, that's a big company, 200 people, but still I would imagine most people you talk to and say, hey, I'm going to make this transition from this seemingly super stable thing, good career growth. I could eventually probably be an executive at this publicly traded company, or I'm going to go join the startup. Everyone's like, why would you do that? And, and you really got to have a lot of like confidence, determination, intentionality to, to push through. And something I've seen through or heard through having these conversations now is that the folks that are able to make these leaps is actually not driven by like, comp or title they're driven by curiosity and they're just so excited about the potential to learn and that's quite hard to communicate to other people because everyone else is just kind of looking at like comp and title on the surface so what what pushed you to make that jump and like how, how would you talk about it to people when when they'd obviously ask you it's a, you framed it well and it you know it's the same ultimately the same thing that caused me to move from statistician to analyst, right? I'd reached some level of stasis that was calm and easy. And I'm, as I said, I'm not good at that. Like I want to be, I, I want to be 
in untested waters in a in a certain sense, right? Like I, I I always want to be learning. I want there to be a lot of things that I need to stretch myself, and I tend to gravitate in places where where that's true. And the ability to join an organization where I could really build out the team myself, right? Like the marketing team and function at 2U at the time was fairly nascent. And I had the ability to jump in and build the team almost from scratch and put the structures in place and build the culture and be accountable uh, for all of it, which was scary. Not the least of which, you know, 2U was headquartered outside of DC at the time I lived in Richmond. So there was a lot of commuting involved because we didn't move. We, we, we debated it at the time, but decided I was just going to commute. I had three very young children at the time. God bless my wife. She, she carried a lot of water during those, those times. So, you know, it was non-obvious for a bunch of reasons, but it was, it was the best thing I ever did. Like, it, it, it changed my life, my family's life. It opened up amazing opportunities. Uh, it's the reason... I met you and I'm sitting here today, right? Like it, some of those non-obvious choices that are scary, you know, if, if it's not super scary, it may not be a big enough one. Like, what do you honestly, you know, I kind of want to shine a little bit of a light on how maybe some of these decisions aren't as intense as they feel in the moment, but you might disagree with me. You might, like, hey, it could have been a complete catastrophe. Like, say it didn't go so great. What, like, what do you think would have happened? Yeah, I I thought through that. Like as a future coder. predictor, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I'm a I'm a coder. I'm a math guy. I think through all scenarios. I'm I'm a very kind of linear thinker, and so I I thought through that. And my take was, I built enough support and externally and competencies internally that I felt like if I went and tried my hand at this startup and it flamed out. Right, like the company didn't make it, or I wasn't a fit. Right, like because that's another thing that's not obvious. Like somebody who's grown up in a big company, like you could have making the leap into startup world. Sometimes there's just organ rejection there, right? Like sometimes it just doesn't work. But my thought was, given the given the support and skills that I built over time, you know, I, I, my bet was if in two years I came back to Capital One, they'd probably hire me again or some other bank, or like, I, I felt like it really wasn't existential, right? Like, to your point, it feels like a, a big step. And it is scary, because even with that backdrop, it's still scary, right? Like, you're, you're going in and saying, I'm leaving. You're stepping in and meeting a new team. You're now accountable for things that you don't know how to do. And you feel like you're faking it for a long time. And I think that's natural. But you're right, it, it wasn't completely existential. Actually, you know, let's talk about that for a sec. You said something that I think a lot of people wrestle with. You know, we talk about imposter syndrome. You went from being super successful at a really big company to now having a bigger title in a smaller place, a different kind of remit. But yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I look at that happened to me at WeWork. I was, you know, for a long time, the youngest executive there. And there's definitely days where I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, like empirically putting up the numbers, doing what my job was. But I was, you know, I was sitting next to someone who was a CFO of a publicly traded company, someone who had taken like multiple companies public. And I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, this is crazy. All the time I had that feeling, right? <laughs> like, and I, I do think it's natural having, you know, been through 
a fairly windy career that's had a bunch of pivots and having worked with, you know, hundreds, thousands of people in different parts and stages of their career, that is more common than not, that imposter syndrome, especially when you're pushing yourself in new directions, right? Like you're, you're pushing yourself out of that stasis and into this realm where you don't know everything and feeling like I didn't belong or I, like, you know, what am I doing here? To your point, you know, I, stepping into board meetings and, you know, the, the first couple rounds at 2U were led by Highland and Redpoint and Bessemer. These are kind of very top tier firms. And I'm sitting around a board table with, you know, a board member from Netflix and a board member from, you know, and I'm like, what, what happened? I, like, you know, I was this kind of senior guy at Capital One. Now I'm in a boardroom representing like, you know, how we're going to make CAC better and like, it's all going to be good. And, you know, that's stressful and it's hard not to feel like, you don't, you know, you don't belong. So that's the funny thing about careers, right? We kind of like want that. We don't, we're, we're sort of bored with the status quo. We want to learn. We want to grow. We throw ourselves into it and they're like, whoa, wait a second. Should I be here? But it's, you know, I, I often reference the, the sort of gym, no pain, no gain. The truth is like, if it's not uncomfortable, then you're kind of not growing. You're not stretching the muscles. You're not uh, which then is where we kind of then get uncomfortable with the lack of growth. So it's, it's a tricky thing. But you went on to objectively crush it at, at to you. So talk us through, you know, getting there as a startup to I think essentially was a quite successful IPO, which is really what you know, a lot of people who join startups, that's really the goal is to have that big exit, so to say. So what, what were some big moments there? So I joined probably three and a half years before the IPO. As I said, there were two programs live. We launched two more. I came in, for, for me, the, the biggest thing was about building a team and building the right team and hiring the right people and surrounding myself with people who are smarter than me and you know, clearing the way for them to do great things. And, you know, ultimately after a couple of years and my non-solicit was over, I brought in some friends from Capital One and, you know, building the team getting the right instrumentation in place. Because if you think about the challenge, one of the things that was interesting about to you from a marketing standpoint is A, we're marketing behind these centuries old brands that have never really had true performance digital put behind them, right? Like literally these brands are older than, and so to be able to come in and, and put digital marketing behind them was really unique. And we were selling or marketing hundred thousand dollar things from a distance right these are very considered purchases which meant there's all kinds of unique aspects to the marketing piece of it it was a very long funnel so a you got to get people interested and then you got to manage them through the point where they've actually submitted an application and are contemplating enrolling so we would manage that process all the way through to a completed application and then hand the application to the school like berkeley decides who gets into berkeley and they hand the application back to us and we would help get them enrolled. But getting somebody through to a completed application, that's a long process. So if you think about for the marketers out there and you're thinking about CAC, which is the thing that you know unifies all marketers these days and thinking about and stressing about CAC, the, the actual event, right? Like, am I converting someone can be six months after I show somebody an ad. I can't wait six months to know whether that ad was effective, right? So we had to build all kinds of predictive instrumentation along the way to be able to predict what conversion would be and thus what our CAC would be, or else I didn't have instrumentation on any of the marketing dials, right? So it was a very, very mathy, 
approach that we had to take. And the other thing that was interesting about it is each time we would launch a program, right? Like how you go market and find somebody who might be interested in a master's degree in data science at Berkeley is very different than how you market and find somebody that's interested in a nursing degree at Georgetown, right? So you're having to relearn at every program launch. And like that was tricky. So it just took time to get that instrumentation built and those teams built and those skills built. And it was not a linear path. And there were some very rocky moments along the way, but we got it figured out. And, you know, IPO and I think to you at its peak had something like a five and a half billion dollar market cap. It's lost several billion since then, but haven't they all? Uh, yeah, everyone has. So we'll give, we'll give them a pass. <laughs> That's um, a billion so, here or there. <laughs> so, so to, for anyone listening, well, one, for anyone listening who doesn't know what CAC is, it's customer acquisition cost. Uh, which is a super important number for all businesses at this point. But I would love to hear from like a headcount perspective, roughly, what was like your function distribution? And yeah, I would imagine kind of what I'm teasing out here is I think you had a pretty big data science group. But if you were to say you're like your direct reports, how big were each of their functions proportionately? Yep. And that what's interesting is a company grows like that, that can even ebb and flow. So for everybody in, in marketing, there are points in that journey where I managed marketing so all of the marketing functions, which I'll come back to, and admissions. So think inside sales, basically, right? So we generate mm. a lead, and then that lead comes in, and then there's somebody who picks up the phone and says, hey, this is Joe Smith from University of Southern California. Can I help get you through, right? So we had an inside sales team. As the org scaled, that organization of all of marketing, all of data science, all of admissions, that's thousands of people, right? So that ended up breaking off, and I just ran marketing and admissions plugged in separately because it became such a beast of its own, right? So even that role changed as the org, as they often do. But, you know, inside of marketing, even that grew to be hundreds. So I had the data science team, that was probably 10 or 15. And then inside of marketing, really broadly, I had... uh, kind of an analytics optimization function, more of a brand marketing function because we were stewards of these brands, right? Like everything we did had to be approved by these. So, you know, we had a, a function or a group that uh, centered around that and then think like growth marketers out there actually tracking ads. So like performance marketing. Yeah, because what I want for anyone listening who's like exploring marketing, you know, I think there's, you can still be analytical and math oriented. It doesn't mean you have to go to finance. It doesn't mean you got to be in the operations department, right? There's a lot of different ways that you can instantiate these skills on different domains and different subject matters. And, you know, that, that's kind of what I want to highlight for folks. And the cool thing is about marketing as a function, bias, I'm a growth guy, but is you can see the, the impact of your work. You know, a lot of things are, yeah, are kind of hard to see, but in, in marketing these days, it's becoming much easier to see the impact of your work. All right. So to you, we, I mean, I feel like we still have, we're short on, we're running out of time. We've got so much cool career stuff to talk about. So, all right, two, let's call them two grand slams, career crushing it. And then you're like, you know what? I'm going to go teach. Like, I'm going to go back. I'm just going to say that, you know, again, I'm sure everyone's like, what, what is, you, you just took a company public. <laughs> you're going to go teach. So, so talk us, talk us through that. Cause I think a lot of people wrestle with this. I'm going to go back to school, you know, it feels like a pure passion play. You know, yeah, well, how, kind of what, what was the thought process? 
boy, are you right, where people are like, what are you doing, right? Like, I was the CMO <laughs> of a publicly traded company that was doing incredibly well. Uh, again, like, I'm bad at stasis. <laughs> I just am. You know, I'd hit a point where the team had been built. And, you know, we were launching new programs, and there was some marginal optimization that can, you know, would continue to happen. But I felt like that was leveling off. The the big learning opportunities, the ability to kind of be in that uncomfortable space and push myself had started to wane. Not to say that there you know, weren't plenty of opportunities there, but I just, I felt like that was the case. And, you know, I'd always wanted to teach. I mentioned my plan when I joined Capital One was I was only going to be there a couple of years. And because of 2U, I built some really solid relationships with deans and provosts and things like that. And those things started to come together and realized I had an opportunity to go do that. And I, I took it, you know, thankfully, because of the 2U experience, I, I was able to put a, a little bit of money in the bank, not a ton, but in, enough where I could make a career decision not so optimized around one dimension like salary, right? Like you, you don't go teach because you want to get rich at it. You go teach because it's something you're passionate about. And I wanted to try my hand at a different type of impact, right? Like actual working with students, like to you was a mission driven company, but I, I really wanted to try my hand, like actually working with students. And I didn't know whether I'd be a good professor or whether I would like it. And I loved it. And you were to try. really committed, really committed to it. Yeah. Actually one funny little story is that, you know, as we raised our last round, City Light and Jeff led it. Every time Jeff would make an introduction to me, I, uh, I would talk to the person and say, yeah, we, we really tried to hire Jeff when he was teaching and he just said no. And then I think I had that conversation like five times where people said, yeah, we tried to get Jeff to join our company and, and he just wouldn't. Like to have that kind of like career diligence or like, you know, life diligence, I think is, is, is pretty impressive. But I feel like you were committed to a thing. Can, you know, were those hard? Was like every time you had to like sit down and like weigh out the options or because you had given yourself this framework for like, I'm doing this, did it help make that a little easier? It, it was hard. Every time it's hard, right? Like, and in particular, when you're stepping into something that's a little scary, right? So when somebody comes and offers you something that's a little more certain, like the minute I left to you, Capital One came, hey, you want to come back? And here's this big role. And, you know, that's hard to say no to, right? Because you're stepping into something that's uncertain. In particular, when, you know, it's not just about me. I, I've got a wife and three daughters and responsibilities and weighs on you, right? Like even if you know you're doing things for the right reasons, it's hard. But I was committed to doing it and it was a tremendous experience. And I, I taught all the way through last summer. Like I joined City Light four years ago, but you know, I was still teaching. But I built a bunch of courses. I, I, I loved being in the classroom. COVID was hard. Professors, teachers, students, that was a tricky period. But you know, it was in that period I started angel investing and advising and realized there was other things I really enjoyed. Like I surprised myself at how much I enjoyed working with these early stage founders in a different way. Like I, I'd always assumed I'm an operator. I got to have my hands on the wheel, but I was totally loving like the advisory work I was doing. And that's what ultimately slowly led me to City Light, which I'm happy to talk about, although I know we're getting short on time. So another theme that continues to come up in these conversations is careers are either shaped or not shaped by awareness. And like, I can only really pursue the things I'm aware of. You know, sometimes I have uh, an interest in a domain or an activity, and then it'll kind of drive me. 
But in particular, VC, I think is a tricky one because just a lot of people don't have awareness to this field. They don't understand that, you know, I'm talking like the general population doesn't understand that an yep. Airbnb was made possible by a venture capitalist. You know, Google was made possible by a venture capitalist. And so I'm curious what your exposure to like the field and the domain was and then kind of how that transition happened as you started to do a little bit of advising and investing and and you got super excited about it. Yeah, it's a great question. So my exposure happened through to you. Prior to that, when I was at Capital One, I, I knew next to nothing about venture capital and private equity or any of that, right? But it, to you, I was on the team that was raising the capital. So it was mm -hmm. myself and the COO and the CEO that were out when we would raise rounds of financing we'd have to go out and essentially pitch the company to venture capital firms to try and, to your point, raise capital, just like Google did, just like Airbnb did, to bring that capital in to try and grow the business. So I got introduced in a very quick, very real way to trying to go raise hundreds of millions of dollars from venture capital firms. And so built a network that way and an understanding of how that works and how, you know, all the way through IPO and what does that mean and board meetings. and so just built network that way. And then that network, again, going back to the point of, you know, people you work with, you want them to hire you again and so on and so on. And the networks are long and windy. When it, when I left to you and was teaching, a bunch of those venture firms knew my skill set. They knew I was a good direct marketer. They knew I understood data. And when they had a company that they thought could use some advising there, they'd give me a call and say, hey, I've got this company that needs help here, help there. And like, because of those networks, these VC firms would just drop me in as an advisor. And that's how I realized, wow, I really kind of like this. And City Light, uh, I'll just sort of tease that. So City Light, I'd known for a long time, City Light was one of the first outside investors into you. They came in, mm -hmm. the, it was a bridge round to the Series A finance. That was where City Light came in. So I got to know my partner, now my partner, Josh, he was the, the lead partner on the deal and was on the board early days of 2U. So that's how I got to know City Light. And as all the, you know, Josh and I had stayed friends over the years and our wives are friends and kids were friends and we'd always kind of talked about doing something together. And as I started having these realizations of, wow, I'm really digging this kind of advisory work. And, you know, Josh and I started talking about things we could build together at City Light, you know, the next transition just happened. And so now you're a professional venture capitalist. Uh, I Did you ever so think that'd be the case? Never. <laughs> Never. It is the favorite job I've ever had, uh, like hands down. I probably still spend a day a week coding and building stuff inside of City Light. You know, we're very data-driven, tech-driven. Like we approach our firm just like startup founders do. We, we build stuff in ways that's super cool. But I love it. And, you know, as I started it at City Light, I was still teaching. So I, I taught a class here or there. And we just raised a, you know, fairly large of capital of other people's money and having a side hustle of bad form <laughs> you know when I'm, I'm shepherding other people's money so uh i i stopped teaching which that was a tough email to write to say i wasn't gonna seek reappointment a year or so back and uh have been doing vc standalone you know uh since then and boy do i love it it's great so question for you do you ever consider starting your own thing I feel like you've got the credentials, you've got the network, you know, but that seems like it was a uh, seems deliberate. But I'm curious, is that what you know, well, teaching is kind of your own thing in this really interesting sort of way. But I'm um, curious about, you know, 
going out on your own was something you considered? Yeah, like it is something I never ruled out, right? Like I think um, the the confluence of events to to make something like that happen, like having the right idea with a, a co-founder and you're kicking it around and sort of deciding to go do something, like those pieces just never kind of came. And, and, you know, it wasn't something that I was so passionate about that it needed to be mine. I, w- I want to build something like uh, it, it just those paths never happened and I never forced it to happen. Having said that, we really have approached City Light over the past couple of years a lot like a startup. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, this is I'm building stuff every day and building product and sort of, you know, things that I think are relatively unique, certainly in the impact investing lane of venture capital and really venture capital writ large. So it, I have gotten a taste of that um, at City Lake. When I, when I think about careers and the folks that go out on their own, it's, I think starting a company is just another like means. It's not really an end. And it feels to me from like now having listened to your career, you didn't need that means. You've, you've wanted agency, you wanted growth, you wanted to be stretched, and you've been able to craft your career in a way that you were always able to get that. And when, as soon as you started to plateau, sure, one path could have been to start a company, but you were able to, through networks and opportunities, continue to grow. And so I, I'm sure one day if that happens, it's not off the table as a tactic. But it, I mean, what, I, what I think is cool about your career is you never, at least from what you just told me, it doesn't seem like you ever obsessed on the tactics. You were more concerned with the experiences and the opportunities, and it's worked out pretty well. I, I've never thought about it that way, but that's right. Uh, that's right. You know, for me, at every step, major or minor, it was about feeling like I could continue to grow and learn at a pace that was steep. And the beauty of well, venture I'm- capital is, sorry to interrupt, but, you know, the beauty of venture capital is we're, you're always learning something new, right? Like you're diving in and learning about carbon sequestration and biochar or, you know, cutting edge approaches to dealing with stimulant use disorder or, you know, you know, so on and so on. Like you just go deep, deep, deep and learning new things all the time. Uh, so just definitionally this as a job family works for me because you're constantly learning. You have to. Well, from my interactions with you, I feel like that's always the case. And also the beauty is I feel like you reciprocate. You're always teaching. So I feel like I'm always learning. And so oh, I think thanks. that makes for, for, for good exchanges. Well, Jeff, that was awesome. I don't feel like you've put a lot of your career out there. I feel like, you know, you're usually heads down working. So I'm really excited to share your story and for people to see what a cool path this could be. Well, thanks. This was, this was really great. Thanks for having me. If folks wanted to connect with you or anything you wanted to share, cool ways for them to stay on top of what you guys are up to at City Light? Yeah, no, feel free to find me on LinkedIn or go to citylight.vc. You can find me there. If any founders are building something great in climate or education or care, please, please reach out. Awesome. Well, we'll link to their website in the show notes. Thanks so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I hope we can do this again. Would love that. Thanks, Dave. And that's it for this episode of Nonlinear. 
If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. You can learn more about Teal on our website, tealhq.com. That's teal like the color, T-E-A-L-H-Q.com. Or follow us on social media at teal underscore HQ. Thank you so much for joining us and please tune back in to keep hearing about how we make the decisions that shape our career. The Teal Career Paths podcast is produced by Rainbow Creative with senior producer Matthew Jones and editor and associate producer Drew McPowell. You can find more information on them at rainbowcreative.co. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.